Hello, hello everyone. This is Mitzi and this is Mitzi Let's Think About It. And I have a special guest here, Lawrence, that is going to be speaking about mental health and suicide prevention and the business that he was able to create out of it. Lawrence, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Missy. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, I'm Larry Sprung. I'm a founder. I'm the founder and wealth advisor at Midland Financial, which is my financial firm. But really what we want to talk about today is my involvement in mental health and suicide prevention. So if you want, I could just give you a little inkling into why I got involved. Is that appropriate? Yeah, go right ahead. Great, Dive Missy. right in. Yeah. So as Missy said, I'm very involved in mental health and suicide prevention. It's something that I'm extremely passionate about. In 2004, I lost my brother-in-law to suicide. He battled with bipolar disorder for many years and essentially, unfortunately, just like any other illness or other illnesses, no different than cancer or muscular dystrophy or other types of diseases or disorders, it ultimately took his life. And, uh, you know, what Mitzi was alluding to in the introduction was uh, he passed away roughly a month before I was slated to launch my firm, Midland Financial, where I work today. And there was, you know, a huge conversation about that as far as whether or not we should put that on hold or move forward. And, you know, my wife ultimately said, this is what, you know, my brother-in-law, Keith, what Keith would have wanted. So we moved ahead. And since then, we've been thriving as a firm. And more importantly, we've done a lot of great work in the area and the space of mental health and suicide prevention. I just finished up a, about a 12, 14, 14-year tenure on the National Board of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is wow. one of the leading organizations uh, in the space in the world. And I am still involved today, just not on a board level. I didn't leave on my own accord necessarily. I left because I hit term limits. So I hit the maximum term and limits uh, for a board position. So I had to come off for a year. There is talk that I may go back on, but either way, I'm still involved. I'm still on the finance committee and actively involved uh, with the organization as well as suicide prevention and mental health in general. Well, that's amazing how you were able to dedicate, you know, your brother-in-law's death into something beautiful, you know, and I applaud you for that. And that's why I was so intrigued to get you on the show because I'm only assuming, um, thankfully I haven't had that happen to me with anyone close, but how did you have to coach yourself to make this happen you know what i mean like what really i mean i understand that your brother's death was serious enough to make you want to do this movement but how did it really impact you to the point where you knew this was something that you knew you had to do does that make sense yeah, I mean, I think that what it came down to is when we lost my brother-in-law, my wife from the very beginning, very early on said, you know, we would not let him go quietly. And we were going to tell everybody we knew about his story, because the thing that we learned, which we probably didn't know at the time was, uh, and this goes back to, you know, his funeral, etc. The number of people that walked up to us at that moment and at that time and shortly after and said to us, hey, you know, really, uh, you know, sorry to hear about Keith. Just so you know, I lost a mother, brother, father, uncle, 
go on and on and on to suicide, you know, whether, and in many cases, they approached us in that fashion and kind of with a wink and the nod said, well, the family thinks they died from a heart attack or some other ailment because it wasn't talked about. So I think that was really the impetus and why my wife said, hey, we're not going to let him go quietly. And we're going to tell everybody we know and everybody that will listen uh, his story because maybe, just maybe by sharing our experiences and his experiences and what led to his death perhaps would save another life. And essentially, I can tell you with certainty that we have in fact saved lives. You know, after that event, my wife and I, you know, basically became much more knowledgeable than we were at the time about mental health and suicide prevention. And we've become like a de facto resource to those in our community, as well as those in our greater community through social media and whatnot. And people have reached out to us asking us for advice, help, guidance. Now, we're not doctors, we don't give medical advice, but in terms of trying to navigate the system, opportunities, options that may exist for them, and through guiding them, we know that in fact, we have saved lives along the way, which is, you know, the most meaningful outcome that we've had uh, as a result of his death. So, you know, to answer your question directly, we had a choice, right? We could be like everybody else and kind of brush it under the rug and just chalk it up to, we lost my brother-in-law and we could make up a story as to why he passed and have everybody kind of assume that that's what took place. Or we could do, you know, take the route we took, which is tell everybody the reality, share his story and show people that, hey, listen, we're willing to share the truth. We're willing to share what really happened. And if you're struggling, it's okay if you share too, because not everybody is living an Instagram life and it's okay to share those things. And I think we've opened up those opportunities for people to share. That's very impressive, you know, because like you said, it's not talked about enough. People don't want to talk about this topic because they feel like it's going to provoke it or bring it upon them or someone they love. And that's not how it works. You know, we really need to talk about these topics like suicide, depression bipolar, you know, what's causing all of these anxieties to push you to that edge of actually doing it, you know, and preventing it is the biggest thing. And I honestly and truly believe that you have saved many lives because just a conversation about it will save someone's life so that they can reconsider so that they can start asking themselves those questions that are going to wake them up because I'm pretty sure their mindset, we're always just telling them what's wrong and telling them all the negative things to lead to that point of suicide. But once you start questioning those statements of what you're telling yourself, it really makes you think about it in a different way. Because I've looked at that line of suicide before, you know, it was right there where it was like, it was a possibility, you know, let's be honest, when you are in that mindset of contemplating suicide, that line is right there, because it's a line, you know, once you cross that line, there's no turning back, there's absolutely no way of getting your life back, you know, after that point. So asking these teens and these young adults and no matter what age, because it can happen at any age, you hear in the news, an eight year old killed himself because of bullying. And you hear, you know, a grown adult killed himself because they can't handle the stress of life in their family. You know, no one's exempt from this, no race, no sex, no nothing, you know, no one's exempt. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, there's people out there who care about other people's lives to try and actually make a difference 
difference, you know, I truly applaud you because I wouldn't have been able to build up the courage to make that move. You know, I'll probably still be in depressed mode and just sad. Well, I will say this, Mitzi, I think it took you a lot of courage and has taken courage for you to even share your own personal experiences. So I don't necessarily agree with you. I think you've done it. I think just you sharing your story is great. One thing I would say, you know, just as a teaching point for you and from my work, and this may not be something you've experienced or even been exposed to, you know, when talking about somebody who passed from suicide, we would highly recommend rather than using the terminology killed him or herself or their self, because really you're putting that action in their hands. And in a lot of cases, they are not in a right mind. So I would recommend using the terminology such as died by suicide, because it's more an indication of them dying from a disease that ultimately got them to that point and not really a conscious decision that they made in that moment. Because a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's just a situation where, you know, they just don't have the mental capacity at that point and don't see any other way out. I had a gentleman on my podcast, the Midland Money Mindset, he's a former NHL hockey player, and he talked about being in his car with a loaded gun and basically ready to, you know, die by suicide. And the thing that kept him from not doing it was he didn't want to die. He just wanted to have things easier. He wanted to feel no pain. It wasn't that he ultimately wanted to die. It was that he was tired and he was lethargic. And, you know, once we start thinking, and I I will tell you this, going back to when my brother-in-law passed in 2004, over the last 17, 18 plus years, a lot has changed. The conversation's a lot more rampant. People are talking about it a lot more, which is excellent. This was not the case when he passed. And my wife and I sometimes wonder what would have happened if he were here today. But, you know, having these conversations is important using, I think, the right terminology and acknowledging that this isn't really a conscious decision in many instances is really key and pertinent to allowing people to come out and seek the advice and the counsel that they need to get better. No, well, thank you for that. Thank you for correcting me, because sometimes I don't know all of the right terminology. And I know many people don't either. So thank you for teaching me and my audience who may be listening that may be using the wrong terminology because that gives them back that dignity and that respect. And I see what you're saying and you're absolutely right. It's more of a disease and it's more of a a mindset that just took over just like any disease would to a body. So I think it's a disease of your brain, really, you know, and and that's really what it is. And at the end of the day, and you know, my kids right now are 16 and 19. But you know, my oldest son, my brother in law passed when he was 18 months old, and my younger son never got to meet his uncle in person. And my point is, we always talk to them about their uncle. And we when asked, you know, where is he, we always were honest. And we, you know, obviously, you have to frame it to the proper ages, right. But from a very young age, it was Hey, Uncle Keithy died from a disease of the brain, which was true and actual. And as they got older, they understood and we, we started giving them more information and they started understanding. And today they know what happened and they understand that he died by suicide. But the important thing is they've been brought up and, and knowing and feeling comfortable having those conversations so much so that, you know, about a year ago, a, a friend of my 19 year old was uh, having some personal struggles and he stayed on the phone with her for like six or seven hours through the 
the night to make sure that, you know, she was not going to harm herself. And when he asked, why are you having these conversations with me and not your parents? And, you know, her comment was, my parents don't want to hear about it. They think nothing's wrong with me. And, you know, that's kind of the things that perpetuate this and having that conversation is so important and be able to have those. So if any of your listeners want to kind of learn more about having those conversations and proper terminology, there are a ton of resources at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website. It's AFSP or AdamFrankSamPaul.org. There are a ton of resources there that are helpful for your uh, listeners. Thank you for that, because that was actually going to be my next question. So you beat me to the punch. I appreciate that because I feel like what would be the resources if need be? You know, I understand that there's a hotline and I was just wondering if there was other resources or like a website. So thank you for that, because, you know, having those resources is important because like you said, it's a disease in your brain. It's a disease in your mind. And once we start seeing these mental disorders and start putting them as a disease from your brain, then people will start seeing people's feelings feelings and what they're going through differently. You know, they start paying attention and start recognizing red flags instead of just assuming someone's complaining or not being able to handle life. Maybe they'll put in a different perspective. So thank you for that. You yeah, really it's no, di- it's, it's no different than it's no different cancer or any other disease, really. You know, I lost my mom at a very young age. She died from breast cancer. And I think the only, you know, couple of differences between cancer and a disease of the brain is you don't see, you don't physically see anything wrong with these people sometimes like my brother-in-law 27 buff guy worked out went to the gym every day you know really fit guy and if you saw him and you just judge based upon his appearance you would think that there was nothing ever wrong now you have somebody who's you know has cancer going through chemo there are physical ailments that you could actually see with that individual so it makes it easier just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there and it's not valid it is and you know to your point having those conversations and being there and saying something in the right moment to somebody could be the, you know, just saying something could be the difference maker in whether that person, you know, reevaluates their decision or their capabilities or not. And it's important that we do that. Awesome. Awesome. And I guess what would be the steps to like talk somebody down? You know what I mean? If somebody were to call me or call somebody or they don't want to be in that mindset, like how would you talk somebody out of it? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, so no, I don't know the answer. Oh, to you that. don't know the answer. Uh, you know, to but oh, okay. no, I'm not I'm not a doctor. But I mean, what I can do is I can provide some tips that that would be helpful. I think you should have a conversation with them. You shouldn't blow it off as something that's not serious. Certainly have a conversation. You know, if it's something that is not in your bandwidth or within your expertise to kind of handle, you know, there are a lot of local resources that you can make phone calls to hotlines, you know, there's the suicide prevention line, both the hotline where you could call text line also, as well as like, for instance, here on Long Island, there are countywide organizations that can help in those instances too. So I think if it, you know, if it's something that somebody is really considering this and, and you're really nervous about their situation and their life is in jeopardy, it's key for you to make that phone call, whether, you know, and, and what I mean,
mean by that is if they're not willing to call, right, but they're relying on you for that help, then I would say it's really relying upon you to make that call and explain to the person on the other end of that phone that this is the situation you're in. They're trained for these situations to help talk somebody down or get them to seek help. It's no different than 911, right? If you have a 911 emergency, you call 911 and they'll walk you through. If somebody had a heart attack, maybe you have to give them mouth to mouth or resuscitate them. They'll walk you through that. Okay. The suicide prevention line is not just for the person in need and that moment, but it's also there for somebody to help somebody in need. So I would call them, have them walk you through it because they're trained professionals and have them walk you through that situation. And I've done it before. I've had situations where, you know, somebody is not in the right frame of mind and I don't know how to deal with it. And I've, we've called and had them walk us through those situations. So that's really it. And I think the most important thing is as a, as a friend or as a person that knows them is to be there for them, listen, and try to help them get the help that they need, whether you could do that directly. And, you know, if you're of the oak that you think something's wrong, but you're not sure, and you're kind of in that spot, well, you know what, I want to ask them, I think something's not right here, but I don't want to ruin the friendship, ask them. We have a campaign called Seize the Awkward, which is geared towards teens. And it's talked about seizing the awkward. It may feel awkward asking somebody and you may fear your friendship with them, but ask because it could save the life. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. That's very true. I appreciate everything that you've been saying because it has been really making me think about it in a different way. My verbiage, just how I should interact better. You know, it's different when it's yourself versus when it's another person, you know, anybody can take anything to be traumatic to the point of, I just can't do it anymore. Nobody knows other people's situation. Nobody knows how much someone can deal with. So I appreciate your mindset because it's nice how this generation is speaking up about it more. Yes. Agreed. And it's nice how we are all trying to make a difference because, you know, at one point I want this to just be a happening of the past. You know what I mean? People back then used to do that. And now we don't do that because we have different methods to handling that. You know what I mean? I can't wait for a time where we actually are able to say that's the now and, and the statistics for suicide are dropping to the point of barely even none, you know, because it's amazing how I was going to do a topic solely on suicide. And when I was doing my research, it was just just baffling how you know people men and children and women they'll get to this point of suicide and you never know and you never hey, know we, le we lose more people and this was really a staggering statistic back then when my brother-in-law passed and still is true today which really kind of propelled me into helping out this cause and that is we lose more people to suicide than we do to breast cancer and if you think about it, think about the amount of money that's pumped into the American Cancer Society and other nonprofits to study and help that cause. And I'm not saying they're bad causes, they're great causes, but I will tell you this, the nonprofits that focus on suicide prevention and mental health get a fraction of that funding and they have more deaths associated with it. So when I was looking at getting involved and being more charitably inclined, it was a natural fit for me because I was like, you know what, they're getting enough help and money over here for breast cancer. But here was an avenue that I could really make a difference. When I got involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, when I got involved with them, I believe they were like, they, their budget was like maybe 
maybe five or $6 million, not very large. Now, as of last year, we were up at about $45 million. So we've grown right. tremendously. And to your point, and I've always said this in all the years that I've been involved with them, I welcome the day that we could say we put our own foundation out of business and we don't need to exist anymore because that means we really did our job. I will tell you this, we have made a lot of great strides, which is excellent, you know, but it's like anything else. It takes time. We always want things quicker than they actually happen. The good news is I think we're making progress in the right direction. And if we can continue moving in this direction, it's only going to help things, not hurt things. Yeah, that's now I'm curious to know how did you go from five million to forty-five million? Did you guys do like runs and I honestly don't know in what way did you raise up that money to get a more rareness to the society? Yeah. So, I mean, the organization started out at a very grassroots, very small. And over those years, we grew to have chapters in every state. We have a community walk in every state, at least one. And now we have like a national walk as well. Those have been our real drivers and our real fundraisers. Personally, on my end, you know, one of the things that we did shortly after my brother-in-law's passing is we started a memorial golf outing in his name, which lasted for about 10 years. And then we switched. My wife is a active reader. She has a book blog. And I don't remember how many years ago, a romance author reached out to her and said, Hey, you know, I'm writing a book that's going to be released in May. Would it be okay if I donated the proceeds or a portion of the proceeds from the sales to your brother-in-law's memorial fund? Because we set up the Keith Milano Memorial Fund at AFSP. So it's part of AFSP. And my wife was like, yeah, no problem. That'd be great. Essentially what that's morphed into now is over the last 10 plus years or so, we have about 40 authors, uh, romance authors for the most part, that donate a portion of their proceeds for the month of May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. And we raise anywhere between twenty dollars to $50,000 a year from these authors. That combined with the golf outing that we did for 10 years, my wife and I, with this great group of people collectively, we couldn't have done it without all of their help too. But we've raised in excess of $1.7 million over the years, over the 17 years that my brother-in-law has been gone for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I will tell you this, if you are a romance author or you read romance, it's such a great community of people. They really are in line with the mission. They're really in line with raising awareness around mental health and they are unbelievably generous. And, you know, we couldn't have done a lot of what we've done without their help, without the people that supported the golf outing for all those years. And, you know, so to answer your question, it's been just a collective movement of growth. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, younger people are talking about this more actively. I think people are more inclined to align themselves with a charitable initiative and have a charitable component. And mental health is such a, you know, a, a rampant and well-talked about topic that we've been the recipient of it. And we've been recipient of the money. And one of the reasons why we've been the recipients of raising all this money is because of the work we do. We, you know, every year we put about uh, $6 million into research where we actually fund scientists who are working in labs, et cetera, running experiments about mental health and suicide. We have a lot of survivor initiatives for those who've lost somebody to suicide. Suicide. And then we also have a big area for lived experiences for people who have experienced a suicide or an attempt themselves. We have a lot of resources for them. So we really run the gamut and we've really become like the resource when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention. So that in turn has allowed and attracted a lot of 
of financial support as a result of that. Wow. That's so nice how you're able to expand out in many ways. It's like an umbrella and then all these different little tiny parts that are just part of it. So, wow, that's very impressive. Very impressive. I know that and I believe that hopefully we can get it so that we don't have to even need this anymore. I love it. From your mouth yeah. to God's ears, I'll take it. I know, right? <laughs> so, to all of my listeners all over I'll, the I'll, world. I'll move on to the next charitable cause if we eradicate it. So Exactly. I'll be right behind you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to make moods brighter, I want to ask you a funny question just to make the mood a little bit different. What would be the worst buy one, get one free sale of all time, in your opinion? Oh, I don't know. That's an interesting no, one. No, right? The mm-hmm. worst buy one, get one free sale, in my opinion. I don't know. I don't go shopping a lot, so I don't shop a lot. Um, (laughs) But uh, I don't know. I guess it would be something that you don't like, but then why would you buy it? So I I don't know. know, It's free. It's free though, right? Let me turn around the tables. What would be your worst buy one, get one free sell? I think it would be terrible if you're buying something like a face cream and then they give you like a butt cream or something. Like I don't (laughs) want a butt cream for free. All right. Oh, see, I was just thinking of the fact I wasn't even thinking in that direction. I was thinking of you were going to buy one and then end up with two of the same thing. So the oh, second no, thing would be it would be different. Like, yes, yeah, it could be like something different, you know, just trying to get rid of it. Oh, there's different. a lot of bad stuff that can happen then. You know, I like I wouldn't want to buy a Starbucks and then get a, uh, you know, want a hot coffee and then get a, a free cold coffee at the same time. I don't know how I'd be able to drink to it the same. And if I wanted hot, I wanted hot, you know, right. so. But I don't know. That's a good question. This is very deep. (laughs) (laughs) Just wanted to lighten up the mood a little bit. Just to start wrapping up the show, what would be some good advice for myself or for my audience about mental health awareness? You know, I think a lot of this we we touched on, but I'll kind of recap. I think some of the most important things are having conversations like these, you know, having conversations, open and honest ones, sharing stories like mine and my family, sharing your personal story, uh, because it shows other people who look up to or look like or look at us and understand that, hey, if he can say this and talk about this, if Mitzi can say this and talk about this, then you know what? It's probably okay for for me to talk about this. If Mitzi went for help or Larry went for help, you know, then it's okay for me. And I think the more and more we do that, the more and more that will rip, have a ripple effect on the world and our communities as a whole. And it'll allow people to feel comfortable to get the help they need. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of a misconception or misperception, whichever one may fit in terms of if, if you're having an issue that it's something that you have to get permanent help for. Not the case. There are plenty of situations that were thrown in life that are temporary, that we may be going through a very stressful time, that we can get help for that situation in that moment, and we may never need it again. Um, So I think having these conversations and enlightening people that getting assistance and help is important and that they can do it and that there aren't any repercussions. They're doing themselves, their family, their life a service by doing it. I think that's important. I think number two is, again, if you have somebody who's struggling and whether they're come out front and tell you that they're struggling or you think they're struggling, it's okay to say something and ask them. Ask them if they're okay, if you notice a change in behavior. And if it's something you don't necessarily feel comfortable with, you know, helping them or guiding them because you don't have any experience, most of us don't, then, you know, going to those resources and those numbers that, uh, you know, we talk about are great avenues to help 
you kind of navigate through that process. And then I think the third thing is, you know, if this is something you're passionate about and it's something you really want to help, I highly recommend going to AFSP.org and learning more. You could also go to our family site, which is KeithMilano.org. Keith Milano was my brother-in-law. You could read more about his story. And if there's a way for you to get involved, whether it be raising money, if that's something you're comfortable with, or you just want to get involved in one of your local community walks, that's too good too. If you want to be an advocate and get involved with, you know, the political side of mental health, basically, you know, it's like Baskin and Robbins, right? There's 31 flavors. There's 31 different ways you can get involved with the organization. So if it's something you're passionate about, we'd love to help. And it'd be great to have uh, your listeners included and assisting us in, in the mission. And along the way, they'll learn more and be more educated and be able to help people even uh, more so as a result. All right. Thank you so much, Larry. I do appreciate this. Our conversation has been very enlightening, very educational for myself. So I'm pretty sure somebody else got the same light bulb going off on them as well. So I truly appreciate your time, your perspective, your opinion, your movement that you're doing. It's very much appreciated. And if anybody out there that is trying to get involved, like Larry said, get involved. Don't be afraid. The first way to change the world is to start changing the way you think, changing yourself, changing the way you speak and changing the way you act. It starts with you first. That's how we start the movement and changing the world. So start it. <laughs> Stay yes. tuned for more episode, y'all. Bye.